This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the second show of the second season of Dialectica Radio. This show is a second part in a two-part series called Playing the Odds, where we examine the role of number-crunching computer algorithms in the financial markets and how that impacts us today. My name is James Tanner. I'm one of the executive producers of Dialectica Radio and your host for today's show. Now, in the last episode, which incidentally is available right now as a podcast on our website, dialecticaradio.blogspot.com, and also should be available for free at the iTunes podcast store. Just search for Dialectica Radio. In our last episode, we discussed how the use of statistical formulas in finance first came about during the statistical revolution in the decades after World War II. We also talked about how the search for a way to use statistical formulas to beat the stock market, which we called the holy grail of statistical studies, how that led to the widespread embrace of mathematical technique called the Black-Scholes-Merton method, and finally, we described how two of the inventors of that method, Myron Scholes and Robert Merton, helped found a company called Long-Term Capital Management, or LTCM, which was wildly successful for a brief period before it utterly and unexpectedly collapsed following the Asian financial crisis of 1997-98. Now, at the end of last week's show, I hinted at some of the reasons for LTCM's downfall. One of these reasons was that the Black-Scholes-Merton method assumed that the market behaved as if it were perfectly random. Now, this idea is one I'd like to unpack a little because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense on the face of it. How in the world could the stock market behave in a way that is perfectly random? And the answer that Black, Scholes, and Merton would give you is that it's not the values of the companies themselves, the values of the stocks themselves, that are random. Those values are determined by very fundamental things. The size of the company, the size of the revenue stream, the costs of the company, the productivity of the workforce, whether the CEO is an idiot, and so on. What is random is the way that the perception of the value of that company changes from day to day. Now, if you assume that stock investors are behaving rationally, then you'd think that before making a buy or sell decision, these investors would look around for whatever information is available before deciding whether this current stock price is too high or too low. Now, consider that there are hordes, tens of thousands of investors on any given day considering whether to buy or sell a particular stock. Now, most of these investors will be smart. They'll be looking to make the best decision possible, and they'll be aware of most of the available information about the fundamentals of a company. Now, some may overrate a stock, some may underrate it, 
but that would be because those investors have bad or incomplete information, and there's no reason to think that those bad choices shouldn't just balance out on the whole. So at any one time, it's rational to assume that the current price of a stock or another investment is the best possible guess of that investment's value given all the information that's currently out there. This idea is called the efficient market hypothesis. The efficient market hypothesis says that when you look at changes in the prices of investments, what you're seeing is actually the market responding to brand new information about the underlying company or the underlying asset. And one critical part of this new information, one critical aspect, is that it's literally and totally unpredictable. It's random. And therefore, the changes in the stock prices that are based on this random information must also be random. But what does that really mean, that changes in stock prices are random? And that's the real problem here, because there are many different types of randomness. And if you're trying to make a mathematical model that captures the movement of the stock market, that gives you dependable odds on whether the market will go up by 50 points or down by 500 points, the type of randomness that you choose to use in your model better reflect how the market actually moves. Now, I've been struggling over the last few days over how to explain this idea that there are different kinds of randomness in a way that's easily digestible, that also explains why all this stuff matters. It's not easy, but I think I have a decent metaphor. It's called Plinko. The Price is Right is one of the longest-running game shows on TV, and Plinko might be its most popular game. Plinko is a pretty simple game of chance. First, the player can win Plinko chips by guessing the price of certain household goods, and they take those chips to the top of the Plinko board. The Plinko board itself is about 12 feet tall, more or less, resting at a pretty steep incline. And running down the face of the Plinko board are 14 rows of metal pins. And the contestant is supposed to drop the Plinko chip down the board, where it bounces along through the rows of pins until it lands in one of 15 boxes at the bottom, each box marked with a different dollar value. Now, in the real Plinko game, the Plinko chip tends to bounce around all over the place. But let's imagine a version of Plinko where the chip doesn't bounce around. When it hits a pin, it just falls to the left or to the right. And also, let's imagine what would happen if the contestant slides that Plinko chip down the board so it lands perfectly on top of the middle pin in the top row. The odds of the chip going left or right is pretty much 50-50. Now, if the pins are aligned just perfectly, the Plinko chip would then land directly on top of a pin in the second row, either to the left or to the right. And again, the odds of going left or right from there would be 50-50. And the chip then goes down the board, and with each passing row, there's a 50-50 chance of going left or right. This is what we call a random process, or a random walk. And furthermore, it's a type of randomness that in the first episode I called perfect randomness. I call it perfect because at each step of the process you have no good guess as to what's going to happen next. 
Regardless of the path that the Plinko chip takes down the board, at each step, you know it's a 50-50 chance of going left or right. You have no idea which it's going to be. So playing on this board would be a lot like flipping a coin 14 times in a row. And the odds of landing a chip in one of the outermost prize boxes at the bottom of the Plinko board would be the equivalent of getting 14 heads or 14 tails in a row. In other words, it'd be extremely rare. It'd happen approximately one time per 8,000 tries or so. But now let's say that you make a second Plinko board. But on this board, the rows have adjustable pins. And so you take those pins and you move them a little bit. The pins that run close to the center of the board, you move slightly outward. And the pins that run closer to the edge of the board, you move slightly inward. Now, dropping Plinko chips down this board would also be a random process. The Plinko chip would still be taking a random walk. But the pins are no longer perfectly spaced, so the odds of going left or right are no longer 50-50. They may be 52-48 or 55-45. And furthermore, those odds change depending on where the chip travels down the board. Chips going down the middle tend to stay in the middle. But the chips that move away from the middle are more likely to drift near the extreme edges, so that the odds of getting a chip in the outermost prize boxes would be a whole lot more likely than one out of 8,000. So what does all this have to do with the stock market anyway? Well, these two Plinko boards can be seen as models for how the stock market responds to good and bad news over the course of time. The first Plinko board where all the pins are equally spaced apart, and so the results are perfectly random, that would be the right model for the stock market if investors responded to news as independent events. The second Plinko board would be a better model for the market if investors tend to under-respond to mixed news and over-respond to a run of good news or a run of bad news. Now, the task that statisticians had in the late 50s and the early 60s, when the efficient market hypothesis first really came into fruition, was to look at these two Plinko boards and decide which kind of randomness are we seeing in the markets. And traditionally, and going back even to the late 19th century, statisticians believed that the first Plinko board, the perfect randomness model, best described the randomness you see in the real market. But in the early 1960s, Stock market analysis done by Benoit Mandelbrot and his student Eugene Fama at the University of Chicago showed that the stock market most likely behaved like the second Plinko board with lots of sizable jumps in stock market returns. And this analysis created big problems for those who wanted to statistically model the market. The problem was that imperfect randomness and especially the kind of randomness that Mandelbrot and Fama found, where you are exponentially more likely to get extreme fluctuations in the market. It's technically very difficult, and in some cases impossible, to incorporate this kind of randomness into your model and get useful results. If you tried to ask these models, what is the market going to do tomorrow, it'd give you answers like, the stock market will go up five points, plus or minus infinity. And this didn't sit very well with people. But eventually, Mandelbrot faded into financial semi-obscurity, 
writing books instead about fractal patterns in nature. And Fama soon began to weaken his stance somewhat. And before too long, finance economists learned to ignore their earlier work. In fact, Robert Merton, when justifying the early Black-Scholes-Merton method in his 1976 book, Continuous Time Finance, he simply stated that while Mandelbro and Fama may have had a point, it was simply too hard to use that in a working model of the stock market. And on the other hand, a model based on perfect randomness. It would be simple, it would be elegant, and it would be close enough. And by and large, the world of finance agreed that Merton's approach was for the best, even when a massive and unexpected dive in global markets drove Merton's own company, Long-Term Capital Management, or LTCM, to complete ruin in September of 1998. So why didn't the collapse of Long-Term Capital Management cause the financial industry to reassess the validity of their formulas? Well, there was some significant head-scratching going on, but the general consensus emerging after the LTCM collapse was not that it was wrong to assume perfect randomness in the movement of market prices. After all, admitting that there was a fundamental problem with that approach would have resulted in scrapping quantitative methods pretty much altogether, and that'd be like killing the goose that laid the golden egg. And so the quantitative geniuses of big finance focused on one other aspect of the LTCM collapse, risk correlation. And finding a mathematical way to deal with risk correlation is really, really hard. If you have a portfolio of a thousand individual investments, every one of those investments has a correlation risk with every other investment. So imagine that each one of those investments was a point drawn on a piece of graph paper. And imagine that you've drawn these thousand points into a circle formation. Now pick one of these points, we'll call it point A, and draw a line between point A and every other point in the circle. It should be 999 lines. Then go to the next point, point B, and draw lines between point B and every other point in the circle. It should be 998 new lines since it's already connected with point A. And keep going like this around the circle. By the time you get to the thousandth point, you've already drawn close to 500,000 lines, and each one of these lines represents a risk correlation. And each one may be different. Sometimes the correlation is positive, like the risk of investing in both a car dealership and an auto parts supplier, where the investments will either both do well or both do poorly, depending on the market for cars. And sometimes the correlation is negative, like investing in both a new 50-tract subdivision and a new 50-unit apartment complex in a neighborhood where there's only demand for 50 new units of housing. In this case, if one investment does poorly, the other should do well, and vice versa. Now, historically, the financial world dealt with risk correlation by diversifying their investments. That is, picking a bunch of investments that appeared to have as little in common with each other as possible. And until about 15 years ago, the process of deciding how much an investment firm should diversify was a decidedly unscientific process. 
Let's take a look at a credit rating agency like uh, Standard & Poor's or S&P. You see, a, a credit rating agency gives simple letter grades, AAA, AA, A, B, C, etc., to bonds issued by corporations and governments. So let's say an investment bank, like Lehman Brothers, wanted to raise some money. So they issued some plain zero-coupon corporate bonds. Now, don't be confused by that. It's basically just a simple loan. You pay them $1,000 for the bond, and they pay you back, say, $1,100 in 10 years. But there's always the possibility that Lehman Brothers will go broke sometime in the next 10 years. And if they do, they may not ever pay you back. You could lose $1,000. So what S&P is supposed to do is look at the balance sheet of Lehman Brothers' total investments and come up with a letter grade for the bond that reflects the risk that Lehman Brothers will go broke sometime in the next 10 years. And a company like Lehman Brothers, well, you know, they own thousands of investments, and the risk correlations between those investments, they number into the millions. So how does S&P figure out how safe this combination of investments really is? Now, before approximately the year 2000, all credit rating agencies used a very subjective and unscientific method in the form of a simple checklist. Do they have a safe mix of low-risk and high-risk investments? Check. Have they avoided investing too much money in a single industry or a single country? Check. Now, if everything on the checklist was checked, they'd give it a AAA rating. And if a couple of checks were missing, they might give it a AA rating and so on. But after the LTCM collapse in 1998, it became kind of obvious that this subjective method, the checklist approach, wasn't working. The LTCM collapse caught everyone, including the credit rating agencies, by complete surprise. No one anticipated that the economic fate of Thailand was connected to the economic fate of Argentina. And so people started looking for a precise mathematical way to take these complex webs of risk correlation into account when valuing groups of investments. And soon enough, a quantitative expert named David Lee, who worked for J.P. Morgan, wrote an influential paper that introduced one way to mathematically deal with risk correlation, the Gaussian copula function. Now, the Gaussian copula function is very complicated. It's much too complex for your average Wall Street trader to understand. But with this formula, quantitative experts like David Lee could create a computer program. And to the traders on Wall Street, this program was like a magical black box. You take the easily observable numbers for any group of investments plus one other number called gamma and you stick those into the box. And out the other end of the box comes a price for that bundle of investments. And that price should reflect not only the risk that each investment could collapse on their own, but also the risk that one collapsing investment could take others down with it. In other words, this method should have taken risk correlation into account. And so the use of this formula spread like wildfire. Credit rating agencies started using the formula instead of the old-fashioned checklists to evaluate company risk. 
Investment companies themselves started using it, not only to evaluate the risk of their own holdings, but also to create a new type of investment, the collateralized debt obligation, or CDO, which is basically just a bundle of smaller investments. First, they stuffed a diverse spread of low-risk bonds into CDOs, and those sold out like hotcakes. And so then they decided to stuff certain types of credit card debts into CDOs, and those sold out as well. And pretty soon they decided to stuff prime mortgages into CDOs, and then risky mortgages like Alt-A or Subprime. But regardless of the content of the CDOs, the market just kept snapping them up. And soon enough, to feed this demand for CDOs, banks started issuing riskier and riskier loans because they knew that they could simply package them into a CDO and someone would buy it. But why were these people buying CDOs of risky assets? It's because insurance companies like AIG, they were offering insurance for the CDOs, and the insurance was dirt cheap. Why was it cheap? Because the investments were rated double or triple A. And why were they rated so highly? Because the credit rating agencies were also using the Gaussian copula function, and that's what it told them. But as we all know, this ended in disaster. And to understand why, all you need to know about the Gaussian copula function is two things. First, the Gaussian copula assumed, like the Black-Scholes-Merton method, that the market behaved in ways that are perfectly random. And in a perfectly random world, the odds that housing prices would drop by almost 50% in the span of a year and a half would have been virtually unthinkable. It'd be like flipping a fair coin 50 times and getting heads every single time. It's exactly the type of large jump in the market that you would never expect under conditions of perfect randomness. But the bigger problem, and probably the most egregious aspect of this financial collapse, is that the Gaussian copula function was never intended to completely solve the problem of risk correlation. Now, if you recall my explanation for how this magic black box works, you put in a bunch of easily observable numbers plus this weird little thing called gamma. What is this gamma? Well, as it turns out, gamma is a number that is supposed to represent all of the risk correlations contained in that bundle of investments. A single number to represent all the hundreds of thousands of different correlations of risk in that CDO. And the formula doesn't tell you what that number should be. You tell the formula. So the Gaussian copula, in the end, was not a solution to the problem of risk correlation. It was a way to get around the problem of risk correlation, while still coming up with some kind of objective price. But while the quantitative experts like David Lee may have understood that, and to his credit, David Lee did express in 2005 that he thought Wall Street was misusing his formula, the traders, the people deciding how and when to use the Gaussian copula function and deciding what gamma values to use. Most of these people clearly did not understand what they were doing. And unlike the LTCM crisis, this time there was very little in the way of hidden information. 
Everyone on Wall Street knew that everyone else was up to their eyelids in CDO investments. And everyone knew that they and everyone else were taking out tons of loans to keep the CDO machine going, and if housing prices fell just a little bit, there'd be hell to pay. And everyone had quantitative experts on staff that could have told them how to use these formulas, and everyone knew that these CDOs contained lots of risky mortgages, and that the risk that these mortgages would default was probably pretty highly correlated. But rather than connect all these dots... Wall Street just closed its eyes to the problem. They were making money hand over fist. What could be going wrong? And it's not very easy, in retrospect, to look back at all of this and still believe that it's safe to assume that investors are always rational or that markets are always efficient. And without those assumptions, the whole edifice of quantitative finance is on very shaky ground. So when it comes to the future of quantitative finance, there are four common perspectives. The first group claims that there is nothing fundamentally wrong with the efficient market hypothesis or with quantitative finance. It all just needs a few little tweaks, a new regulation or two, a few modifications to the existing formulas, and the system will go back to normal. But there's a second group of people. Um, I'll call them behavioral economists who feel that the efficient market hypothesis just needs to be scrapped and a whole new set of models needs to be invented that take into account the psychological oddities of human nature, the effect of things like moral hazard and herd behavior on the way that markets behave. A long defense on this point of view was written by Paul Krugman, uh, just published in the New York Times Magazine. Now you also have a third group of people, which I'll call the super-pessimists, who believe that if you take those early findings of Mandelbrot and Fama at face value, then the holy grail of finance, the perfect quantitative model of the marketplace, that's all just fool's gold, and that all quantitative methods of finance should simply be scrapped. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, the author of the book The Black Swan, could be fairly described as representing this point of view. And finally, you have a small but growing fourth group who believe that both the efficient markets people and the behavioral economists could be right. In this vein, there's an intriguing alternative to the efficient markets hypothesis called the adaptive market hypothesis that seeks to combine efficient market theory with basically evolutionary theory. The idea is that when there's a lot of competition in the marketplace, a lot of investors chasing scarce investments, that the market will give you efficient results, and day-to-day -day movement of the market will be perfectly random. But when there's not a lot of competition, a small number of investors chasing an abundance of investments, like with investment banks and the proliferation of CDOs before the recent collapse, then in those cases, the market will not be efficient, and you should expect a lot of bizarre jumps in market prices. Now, of these four groups, which one is right? Personally, I have no clue. But what is clear is that the status quo has to change, and it's these four groups who will be battling over what the future of quantitative finance looks like, or if it survives at all. 
And that is the end of our show. For more information on the topics I've discussed today, you can visit the show notes portion of our website, dialecticoradio.blogspot.com. There you can also find podcasts of both the first and the second parts of this show. So, on behalf of Dialectica Radio, this is James Tanner. Thanks for listening, and have a nice day. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.